Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, dean of faculty and professor of Christian ethics, also here at Talbot School of Theology. Today, what we want to do is just the two of us kind of throw around some ideas related to politics and the election. Are we going to tell you who to vote for? Absolutely not. But what we want to do is just toss around maybe some principles, uh, maybe some ideas from Scripture that can just help us think Christianly about uh, the difficult choice that's before us right now, especially in our divided culture. So, uh, Scott, you've done a lot of work on this. Your book, Moral Choices, deals with a lot of different ethical issues, but you weigh into politics. So let me just start off by asking you, do you think Christians have a responsibility to vote? I do. Hmm. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a moral obligation uh, to participate as a good citizen. Um, I'm not suggesting you should vote for any one particular position or sure. not. But I think that's part of a civic responsibility that actually, um, if you think about it, has, has been exercised only by a small minority of people in the history of civilization. You know, it's, mm. only, it's only in the last, you know, 200 plus years that people have had the right to vote about much of anything. And for certain segments of our country, at least, uh, for women and for African Americans, that time period has been much shorter. Mm. So it, it's the, the right to vote, I think, was something that was hard fought. Uh, and it was, a lot of people gave their lives so that the average person could have a say in the laws that, that are crafted that affect their lives. Um, and, it, you know, for the, for the most of the history of civilization, that wasn't the case. The king or the nobility, uh, they made the laws and you were subject to them whether you liked them or not. And there was no sense. You couldn't, I mean, you couldn't get rid of the king unless you, you know, walked in there, <laughs> sure. and, walked in there and stabbed him. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I think the opportunity to vote today, it's easy to think that, well, my vote doesn't count for very much because it's only one vote of sure. a population of over 300 million. Yeah. But I think it, it's, it's, it, your vote does count, and, it, uh, and it, it's, it's even, I think it's more, just more symbolic of your own participation in this really grand experiment we call democracy. So clearly, since the democracy we have today is not the kind you would find in biblical times, Old Testament or New, there's not going to be a Bible verse that says you have the responsibility to vote. So would that be grounded in, say, our responsibility to love our neighbor, to obey the government, say Romans 13? What would be the Christian basis of that moral obligation? Well, I think there's you know, the, the government does not obligate you to vote. Hmm. So I'm not sure Romans 13 would be all that applicable to that. Uh, and you're right. You know, the early church did not have the right to vote on issues, say, like religious freedom. Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, you know they, they just didn't have many options as far as that went. Um, but I think there's probably something to the idea that Jesus, when Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, um, and I think there's a part of rendering unto Caesar reflects that civic mm. responsibility that you have, sort of what Augustine may mm. have meant when the city of God and the city of man, so, you know, something roughly akin to that. Well, it's not not exactly identical to that, um, but but there's a you know there's a part you could also uh, maybe appeal to Jeremiah twenty nine seven, 
which is the, the obligation, even in exile, the, the Jews had the obligation to seek the welfare of the city that they were in. So you vote for policies mm. that, that advance the common good, as mm. opposed to those policies that just advance your own narrow self-interest. That makes sense. So that does seem to be the passage in Jeremiah, does seem to be in line with what Jesus said about loving our neighbors. It could be an extension of that. And that can be a challenge for Christians and really for all of us, because oftentimes when we go to vote and politicians know that, we're always thinking about self-interest. Do I get less taxes in my bracket? Do I get A, B, and C? But it seems that really what you're saying is we should look at this not through our own lens of self-interest, but what is objectively good for the society in which we live. Now, that doesn't mean advancing a Christian society. That's not the point. But we live in God's world. There's a certain way we're supposed to relate to each other and certain moral values, say religious liberty, et cetera, and justice. So loving our neighbor would be taking a step away from saying, what do I get out of this? And what are the right principles for society as a whole? Is that how we Christians should think about this? Well, I think, yeah, I maybe put it in a little different terms because I think we're, we, we're, we're all, we are created for community. Mm. We're created for relationships that take place within communities of, of all, all sorts of sizes. Uh, and we're all members of community. And unless we're a hermit on a desert island, we're a member of a community. And, th- and because of that, we have obligations to the common good of the communities that we live in. I think that's ultimately what Jeremiah meant when it said, seek the welfare of the city, seek the common good. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with pursuing things that matter for your own self-interest. But I think to pursue them exclusively or at the expense of what the the common good is, uh, that's where it becomes corrosive and I think very problematic. I fear today that we've, we were losing even the language to talk about the common good. Because hmm. uh, I fear that in our, in, in probably starting with the baby, the baby boom generation, uh, we just sort of progressively lost interest in anything outside of our own narrow self-interest. Hmm. Some of that I think is driven by a what I would call a a more libertarian or a more economic way of viewing things, that this idea of the invisible hand that Adam Smith wrote about, that by pursuing self-interest, the common good is advanced. Sure. That, he meant that in strictly economic terms, not in more general po- political terms. Yes. So there, I think there are times when it's appropriate to consider the interests of the common good ahead of my own. You know, for example, my kids are not in the public schools anymore. And I know a lot of people who are deeply resentful of paying their property taxes every year because a really good chunk of that goes to the public schools that my kids are no longer in. Sure. So if I'm strictly looking at my self-interest, I view that as immoral, that I'm being, I'm being taxed for something that I don't get a benefit for. But it's not – I think our view of this shouldn't be a working on a strict exchange model. I mean, I, I pay my taxes in order to support public education because it's a good for my community, not just because it's a good for my kids. Hmm. It's a good that my community has educated citizens. You know, it's a good that my community do, encourages public education that, in, that fosters perseverance to finish high school and to finish college uh, and hmm. things like that. So I think it's, it's bigger than that. You know, it's bigger than our own self-interest. Uh, and I, and I really hope 
I hope in this coming election, we can recover some of that lost language of the common good. What would, I'm going to say this somewhat sarcastically, what would possibly give you hope that in this election we can recover some of that language that is lost? Um, how, how would we begin to do that? What could each of us contribute in that fashion? Well, to be honest, I think the, the disintegration of our concern for the common good has been a long-term project. Yeah. And turning it around is not going to happen in one election cycle or two. Sure. So we're, I think what we're, what we're trying to do now is to plant, to plant the seeds so that it can be renewed in, a, in the mm. coming generation. So the, the best thing that I can do is, is to model for my kids mm. how I vote and put and put the interests of my community ahead of the ahead of my own interest in the in the cases that those conflict. Hmm. Um, so that that's I think where it starts because if my if my kids don't get that, then I think we've lost it. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's where it begins. The other the other suggestion I would make is that we we as a, as a public we start demanding of our politicians that they do more than just pander to our self-interest. Hmm. Uh, and that we, we require that they speak to issues of the, the common good and to show how what they're, what they're prescribing is good for our, for our communities, hmm. not just for the individual interests that they claim to be representing. I think we can demand that out of our political discourse. I don't think we do a very good job of it. Sure. Um, and I think some of the you know some of the public forums, for example, that mm-hmm. uh, you know that the campaign debates allow for you know not really this year because we don't we're not doing many of those, um, but we can ask a lot more thoughtful questions of our politicians. Uh, we can express those things in in op-ed pieces to our local newspapers and what in blogs and what we post online. Uh, all of those things I think do make a difference because pe- people read those and if they're well done and reflective. You know, then people start thinking, well, maybe there is more to it than what is important to benefit me. I think it's really interesting. You said a couple things. Why should we vote? Because it, even if our vote doesn't change it, there's something symbolic and exemplary about just casting a vote from the bottom up. And the same is true in the discourse that, you know, let's do what is right in this stage, even though it's a long-term game. And I think that's encouraging because it's so easy to look at the way this discourse takes place and just be utterly burned out, think what's the point, become cynical about it. But as Christians, that's not an option, is it? We have to choose to enter this and be positive, look within to ourselves and our house and our attitude and our vote, and in some ways, you know, set an example and then let God be sovereign. It, yeah, the the idea that we're not going to be about loving our neighbor is simply not an option hmm. for people who are faithfully following Christ. Hmm. The the notion that I can you know that I can simply not care about my community any longer uh, is just is that's just not an option. Uh, you know, yeah, it's it's you know it's one thing. I to be honest, I cared a lot more about my community when my kids were younger and much more influenced by our community. But that's not an option just because my kids are grown and out of the house. Hmm. That's not an option for me to retreat from my community and say this doesn't matter. Um, you know, my vote matters. My taxes matter. Um, you know, I, you know I, think you, I think you can make a legitimate argument about what an appropriate level 
that, that is is right for people to be taxed in. I think it's you know it's not you're not neglecting the common good to say at the same time that you feel like you were overtaxed. Uh, but you know, for me to say I have no interest in paying my property taxes because so much of it goes to schools that my kids aren't using, I think that's a non-starter. Fair enough. So in in the update to your book, Moral Choices. Uh, I notice you don't have a unique chapter just on politics. You talk about, say, abortion, immigration, gun control, these different ethical issues, but not one about politics. I was curious why you didn't include it. It's because I don't like the term politics. Okay. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because it has so much baggage attached to it that mm. is attached that, that is attached to partisanship and personalities. I would prefer we use the term public policy to describe this arena because it's those those structural types of of changes that have to do with the laws that are crafted and the institutions that are impacted by those. Uh, And so not not every moral issue ought to be an issue for public policy. Hmm. Uh, I mean, generally, we don't don't advocate that adultery be criminalized. Hmm. Generally, I think, and I think rightly so, in our culture, you know, we don't we don't generally criminalize laws or things that happen among consenting adults. Mm-hmm. Even though I think you could probably make a case that adultery is actually very harmful in what it does to families as a whole. Yeah, uh, as a whole. Yeah, uh, which is why I think the, the you know the moral assessment is so important in that. Uh, but there are other moral issues that do have public policy overtones. In general, I think those. When when sin becomes a matter of public policy, is when I, is when I think you know our communities are. Or I'll put it this way: is when when essential essential rights are being violated. Like I, I don't have a problem with having laws that would restrict the availability of abortion, for example, because I think the fund the fundamental right to life of the unborn is at stake. Mm. I don't think it's a problem to have laws that restrict the performance of assisted suicide or euthanasia. Because I think fu- fundamental rights to life of the elderly, the sick, the infirm mm-hmm. are at stake. I don't think it's a problem that we have certain laws about immigration. I mean, you, you, I mean, you, you can't help not have laws about immigration unless you're going to have entirely open borders with the sort of the, fl- the, f- the sure. free flow of, sure. of populations. So you, you, if you, I mean, I. If you're gonna if you're gonna have something resembling a country, you have to have some laws regarding yeah. immigration. Um, you know things like you know gun control. I think you know invariably because you know there, there's so much at stake in a in a, a right of self-defense and a in a right to life uh, that are at stake there. That I think it's entirely appropriate to have laws uh, that regulate the ownership of guns. That's fair. So in the book, you're not talking about just politics separately, but it's woven through because each of these issues intersects with politics. Right. And so yeah. in, 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 in what I write about sexual ethics, for example, mm. there's, not a, there's not a big component there for, for public policy, in my view, because you know, so much of the debate is about, morally is about what's done among consenting adults. So how do Christians, in your mind— weigh some of these different ethical issues when they come to vote. And I'll tell you something that was really eye-opening to me as I was speaking with with a black friend of mine recently, and he, he had told me how pro-life he was. And I said, I'm, 
I'm just curious, help me out. I said, it would be hard for me to vote for any candidate who's pro-choice. I said, you don't have to tell me who you voted for. But when it came came to Obama, who is distinctly pro-choice, given there's probably other things you agreed with him on and the historical precedent of having a black president, were you torn in that vote? Because I wasn't torn because of the issue of life. And he just looked at me, he goes, I was more torn than you can ever imagine. And that helped me realize like, gosh, I am really strong, but pro-life and here's somebody else, but they're just weighing these a little bit differently. So how do we do that? It doesn't have to be that particular issue, gun control, immigration. How can we responsibly take these Christian principles and shape the way we vote? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. And I think we need to look at a couple of assumptions that underlie this first. For one, I think we need to recognize that the arena of public policy, or the political arena, however you want to describe that, but the arena of public policy is one that sort of by definition is messy. Hmm. It invariably involves compromise, negotiation, and limited objectives, or else nothing ever gets done. (laughs) Right, right. And that's why the the, the arena of public policy is different than the church. Because in the church, you can have, I mean, you have to have absolute absolutes. or Otherwise, you're outside the faith. Okay, the political arena is not like that unless you're an anarchist. Mm. Uh, and so I would, I would expect that, you know, the, the laws that are passed, you know, the joke is that you don't want to ever observe how laws are made or how your sausage is made. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and I think there, you know, as much as we joke about that, I think there is some truth in that because how laws get made is a very messy process, uh, and and I think that's that's okay, and I think this is one of the reasons why Christians often have trouble relating to the arena of public policy because we come from the church with its emphasis on absolutes, and there's really, I mean, there's just there's a place for principles that's true, but it's you, you know you. You frequently have principles that are in conflict in the, in the public policy arena. You have to weight certain values and principles. Sure. Um, I think I think that's consistent with the Bible. Hmm. Um, you know, I think you know, morally, I think we we live in a fallen world where we we shouldn't be surprised that moral values, even God's moral values, come into conflict with each other. There's nothing to say about about the, the veracity of of God's moral rules or his moral law, it's all about the fallen world in which those work themselves out. So we, mm. I, we, that's not a big surprise. Sure. And that's why the making of laws and, and uh, the promulgation of those laws is invariably one of compromise and, you know, and gradualism. Uh, usually in public policy, if you want all of the pie, you get none of it. Hmm. And so you have to be able to settle for limited objectives. Count your victories where you have them. The other thing that I think is really important is that no party's political platform was written with biblical fidelity in mind. Hmm. So we, should, we shouldn't be surprised that, that whoever's writing the party platform of whatever party in whatever country would invariably have parts of it that would reflect biblical values, but other parts that would not. And so, I, you know, it, it, it pains me hmm. to see that, you know, the, the Democratic Party platform is so resoundingly pro-choice. You know, that's painful. But it pains me to see parts of the Republican platform 
that I think neglect, in my view, neglect the poor mm. uh, or don't put the same emphasis on it. Mm. Um, and I think s- some of the hard lines that are taken by on immigration, for example, I think are, are, those, are, those are painful, and I think they fall short of what the Bible demands. So in terms of weighting those, I'm not sure that there's one issue that that any of us ought to hang our hat on as a, as a deal breaker. I, I mean, I could see the, you know, the concern for life is, you know, it would be one that people would suggest for that. But I think on the whole, you know, the, the Bible calls us to our, to, you know, not to a series of, of hierarchical moral obligations. Sure. They're, they're simultaneous, not sequential. And I mean, God calls us to, you know, be concerned about all these things all at the same time. Hmm. And so if a, you know, and so no, no candidate's going to be perfect, uh, and they are going to have flaws. Um, Sounds like this is really an appeal to uh, less being quick to judge a fellow believer for voting or thinking differently. Try to understand where somebody's coming from, erring on the side of charity. Not that there's never a time to go, hey, you're off base, A, B, and C. But maybe we could have a little bit more charity within the body of Christ. Yeah. Well, and I think here's here's one of the reasons we should do that is because the the Bible rarely speaks in terms of public policy specifics. Hmm. Most of the time where the Bible addresses public policy is at the 30,000-foot level, at at the level of, you know, broad general principles, more at the level of the ends as opposed to the means. Hmm. And even in the specific parts, say, in the Mosaic Law, where they had specific means— laid out to alleviate poverty for example they had a law of gleaning where you could where the yeah. poor could come glean in, fe- in the fields and pick up what was left over or they had the right of redemption of property where if you had to sell your sell your property because you were in bankruptcy your next of kin was obligated to buy it and restore it back to you well those those were specifics designed to create uh, to adhere to a, a specific set of ends to make sure that the poor always had opportunity to support themselves. But we live in a completely different era today. Right, right. And the, I mean, what would the redemption of property look like today? What would the year of Jubilee look like today? Mm. You know, because the the, the, the the agrarian culture of the ancient world could not, could not be more different than our information age economy today. Mm. So how that would translate over in terms of means, mm. is a huge element for debate. And so the, the Bible, mm. I think, is largely silent in terms of what the norms ought to be for the means by which to accomplish the ends. And there's not, uh, among political parties, I don't see a lot of difference in the ends. I mean, no political party is saying that we ought to neglect the poor. Right. The means by which we accomplish that there's huge division on that, and I think mm. the you know, the means have moral implications too. They're not morally neutral, but I think there's lots of room f- to agree to disagree about what means accomplish those ends the best. So, Scott, if if you're a pastor and you're standing up before your congregation and you want to give them some advice of the election that's coming up, some pastors a ignore it, <laughs> b select a particular candidate, yeah, which, uh, which in the U.S. would be illegal. Yeah, te- oh. technically, with the Johnson Amendment or whatever it is, yeah. you're not supposed to do that. C would be saying, here's some principles to keep in mind as you go to vote. Maybe character, 
matters, whatever those things are. What are two or three that come to your mind that would say, these are some of the most important principles for Christians, wherever you're coming from, to keep in yeah. mind as we vote? I'm, these are in no particular order. Sure. Uh, but I, the things that jump out to me, I think, are some of the same things that jump out to me when I read the Scripture. And that is, does the, is the person an advocate for those who are on the margins hmm. of society? Hmm. The, the poorest of the poor, um, I think that you know, the, the, the prophets have an awful lot to say about that. I think you can actually make an argument from the teaching of Jesus that uh, a, 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 a real heartfelt you know, action-oriented concern for the poor and the, and the neediest among us is a constituent element of faithfully following Christ. And that's true for individuals and the church, and nations are judged at times exactly. for not caring exactly. for the poor. I think the, the, a second one is the, the connection between character and leadership. Mm. The, Bible, the Bible's really clear that those two things go together. And it's not just leadership in the church. Uh, the kings, for example, were to, to be men of character uh, who, care, who cared about their people, who cared about their relationship to God. Um, and the, the, the third thing I would, that I would look for is, is the person committed to protecting religious freedom? Hmm. I think that's a really important component because I, I don't think you can— I don't, I don't think you can say that the gospel matters to you if you're not willing to protect the right to proclaim it publicly. So that in particular is for Christians to care about that, but I think you would also say religious freedom is an objective good for the community. Oh, absolutely. For Muslims, yeah. for Jews, and other liberties will follow from the right to speech, the freedom of religion in that sense as well, right? Right, I, and I, yeah, I, I'm with our friend Os Guinness who calls that the, mm. the, the most fundamental liberty. And I would put it, if you take it outside of a religious context, I think you can still protect what I would call a general right to conscience. Hmm. Uh, we, we, but, but, but there's some, you know, there's some boundaries around that. I mean, there are boundaries, around, some around religious freedom. Uh, you know, we're seeing them in our day now because um, uh, there are some churches that think that their religious freedom is being violated by state orders for, for distancing. Yes, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll let that go for now. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. We don't have to have that full conversation. So what, what advice would you give just for Christians going into the polling booth? Because, I mean, I think about when I vote, it's between running back from school, uh, picking up a kid, like I'm busy, I'm distracted, yeah. got stuff going on. But, you know, if what we're saying is true and we really believe this, what frame of mind should we be in? Uh, should it be a, a prayerful preparation? Should it be watching news on both sides? What's realistic expectations for somebody who wants to honor the Lord through their voting and care for society? What are certain things to keep in mind before doing that? Well, I think one thing I would suggest is, is, is if you can, take your kids with you huh. to vote and let, let, them, let them watch you do that. Huh. Um, have to, you have to probably have to check with your polling place to make sure that that's allowed. Sure. Which it might not be. Uh, but I would. I think it's incumbent on us to be educated about what the issues are that the candidates hold most dear. Mm. Um, particularly, you know, in California, we have we have you know multiple propositions, uh, which I think can be just as influential as the candidates who are elected. Okay. Um, and so be educated about what 
you know, what's involved in some, in some of those. Um, and then I think, of, of course, you know, prayerful deliberation about, you know, who you should vote for and uh, what, you know, what types of propositions we, you, we should support or oppose. This, this is really helpful stuff. I, uh, man, I think anybody listening is, is now motivated, myself included, to even be more thoughtful and prayerful about the way I approach voting and charity towards other believers who maybe vote a, a little bit differently. Do you recommend having conversations about politics with people, Christians and or non-Christians during the season? Because we're told not religion, not politics, and I always look to have a conversation about religion. I know. Should we do so? Well, yeah. What 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 other what two other things are the most interesting to talk about? Well, besides sports, but I'm with you, and <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Partly D- depends on who your teams are, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you know I don't I don't know where this taboo about not discussing religion and politics yeah. came from originally, because those that that's like saying you can't talk to people about the things that you hold most dear, mm. Mm. and that you know what kind of relationship do you have with someone if you can't talk about the things that are most important to you? Mm. Now I think to do it with charity, and and listening well, making sure. You know, we're not on a lecture tour. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be on a listening tour than a lecture tour. Uh. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, and to be respectful of other people's views, and if they don't want to talk about it, to respect that Allow and give that. them the distance to, you know, to to back away from that. Um, okay. And, and I think, you know, I would prefer that it be more focused on issues rather than, than on personalities. Hmm. Um, and although you know character does matter sure um you know we know we know that you know char- character may not matter for the way somebody you know does a you know a day-to-day job although i think it does but it matters a lot more for people who are in mm-hmm. positions of leadership and who are going to wield influence over large communities last question for you You mentioned earlier how important it is to be educated and of course people can get on and google and look at sites uh, one of the things i do is i watch cnn and I watch Fox News, and sometimes I can't stomach either side of it for whatever reason that may be. But I just kind of force myself because I want to know how different people are thinking and see if I've missed something. What's another way to prepare ourselves educationally coming into this just to at least be sure we're fairly trying to look at the issues rather than just listen to those people on whichever side of the issue it is that happen to agree with us. Right. And I think, you know, being, you know, taking the time to honestly expose yourself to people who view the issues differently is so important. It prevents what my mentor called a hardening of the categories. Hmm. He said much more lethal than hardening of the arteries. <laughs> and, more lethal. <laughs> and I think, he, I think he's right about Interesting. that. Interesting. Uh, one thing I would add to this is I try and read the editorial pages hmm. of uh, our newspapers. Uh, you know, f- for some of our folks who don't know what those are, those are the things that you unfold in the morning. Yeah, I was going to say look define at, and look that. at over your coffee. Uh, but to to read, uh, you know, and to, to read other sources like you know, I find the Atlantic magazine to have some really insightful things. A lot mm. of times, it's people who I disagree with. Sure. Uh, but it, it, it always stimulates my thinking. Um, and I think, you you know, be careful about, you know, information overload. 
Mm. So you have to, you know, you have, it, it's helpful if you, if you have a news service that helps filter some things for you or okay. provide summaries for you. Those can be very okay. helpful, too. Well, this is this is really helpful. I appreciate the wisdom. I know you've been thinking about this for a long time. So to our listeners, we hope this helps give some biblical principles, some uh, perspective out thinking about this. If you know somebody, uh, whatever side of the aisle that they're on and just needs maybe a little bit of encouragement and biblical perspective about the importance of voting and how to approach it, uh, maybe sharing this with them will help. Scott, thanks for letting me put you on the hot seat. Uh, well done, my friend. I appreciate that. Got lots, lots of good questions, lots of things to think about, and I'd mm. encourage our listeners to approach the election prayerfully and thoughtfully. Mm. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app, and we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.